You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning again, and welcome to Hope Bible Church Niagara. So good to see you and to hear you uh, singing those songs of praise and worship as, uh, as we uh, worship the Lord together. Um, I get excited about this sermon that I'm going to preach to you in just a moment. Before I do that, though, I want to remind you that uh, today, today is the last Sunday in the month. So that means that tonight is at six o'clock is what? What's happening at six o'clock? prayer and praise. That's right. So I'm looking forward to seeing you here tonight as we gather together at six o'clock to pray, young and old. Uh, Looking forward, or whatever you are, whatever you identify as, young or old or both. I want you here tonight uh, as we seek the Lord together in prayer. In particular, not only are we going to worship the Lord tonight in music and in prayer, but we're also going to pray particularly about our future. And I'm going to ask you to be tonight to be praying some particular things and about some particular issues as we look forward and seek the Lord's leading and guidance for us as a church as we, uh, as we look ahead into whatever days he gives us to come. So, so we will do that. Also, too, remember the beginning of the month on Palm Sunday, we had a prayer and praise time in which we prayed specifically by name for a lot of people. I dare say there were hundreds of names prayed for. And uh, tonight, what I want to hear from you, I want to hear from as many as you who have got, got testimony, even one or two sentences tonight about what have you seen God do? What have you seen God do in these weeks, this month, in the month of April? What have you seen him do in answer to prayer? It could have been something he's done in the life of someone you prayed for at the beginning of the month. Maybe another, something else in your life you've been praying for or praying about. I want to give opportunity tonight for praising God for answered prayer. So I'm telling you now, so you can be thinking about this afternoon and come ready to share. You're not going to give a speech or anything like that. There's not time for your speech anyway, okay? But it's like, I want to hear just uh, briefly anyway, what has God done? What have you seen him do, okay? So, so I'm looking, very much looking forward to seeing you here tonight. Also too, May the 26th, we're having a marriage event. It's like a mini conference, just one night only. Uh, Friday, May the 26th, here at the church. And uh, it's going to be a special night, some teaching. We'll have a, a panel discussion, some great fellowship together. If you're married, if you're getting married, uh, this would be a great event for you to be at. And uh, you know what? It's free of charge, right? Talk about a cheap date. I mean, come on. What do you want, right? And I uh, can't be being at church, so, so that'll be uh, May the 26th. And then first weekend of June, what's happening? Ladies, what's happening first weekend of June? Radiant, that's right, our women's conference. It's a legit conference. You need to be there. If you're a woman, you need to be there, okay? And the husbands in the room, if, uh, if you've got a wife you're living with, you need to make sure that the way is clear for her to be able to come, okay? So I don't know what you got to do. I don't know what arrangements you got to make. Just figure it out, man, and make sure that she is able to be there uh, on that weekend. Very, very important, June 2nd and third. Well, my sermon today is on the subject of heaven, and I've got for you three questions as we start the message today. Here's the first question. How often do you think about heaven? How often do you think about heaven? Is it something you think about frequently? Is it something you think about from time to time? Is it something you think about occasionally, rarely, never? How often do you think about heaven? Second question is this. When you do think about heaven, what comes into your mind? Like, when you, if you get thinking about heaven, what, what thoughts fill your mind? What do you see in your mind's eye when you think about heaven? A third question is, when you think about heaven, what informs your thinking? Or what informs your imagination? Like, if I was to ask you right now, think about heaven. I'm asking in part what comes in your mind when you think about heaven, but then where do those ideas come from? Where, where do you get them from? Maybe you think, well, I don't know, but, or maybe you do know. I just wonder, what informs your imagination, your thinking, when you think about heaven? Now, I want to go back through these questions here one at a time and kind of point us in a direction. First of all, notice the first question, how often do you think about heaven? Did you know that God wants you to think about heaven often? Did you know that? that the Bible exhorts us to be thinking about heaven. Just one example, Colossians 3, 1 and 2, we're told to set your minds on things that are above, 
Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. We are to be heavenly-minded people. If you love and follow Jesus, you need to be thinking about heaven. Why? Because God wants you to. The second question there, what comes in your mind? I ask that. It's important because our thinking about heaven, our thinking about the afterlife, shapes and impacts our behavior and living in the present life. This is a very important biblical principle. One example, 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. John, looking forward to the believer's future, says, We shall be like Jesus. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then he says this, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, as you think about what's to come, being with Jesus in heaven... Thinking that way, hoping in him by thinking forward in that way, has an impact on your life. It inspires holiness. It inspires passions to please him. It affects how you live your life. What you think about the afterlife impacts how you live the present life. Now, the third question, when you think about heaven, what informs your imagination? You know, the Bible gives us incredibly wonderful, breathtaking, true images of what's to come when we get to heaven. And I wonder, is, is that what informs your thinking? Or is it other things? Like, what informs your thinking about heaven? The fact is that some people are uninformed. They just, they just don't know. They get their information from wherever, and they just sort of imagine heaven to be some kind of disembodied experience where we float on clouds or we become like angels and grow wings. I've heard that. Many people are often quietly concerned, like I said a couple weeks ago, many people are quietly concerned that heaven will be boring because they imagine it'll be just like one long church service and they find church boring, so they're like, heaven's probably, they're afraid that heaven will be boring too. I just got to say this, I don't mean any offense, but if you think heaven is boring, it's not boring, you're boring, okay? So it's like, that's, that's the issue, just want to say that. Some people are just uninformed though. They don't, they don't have in their minds what the Bible says that we can anticipate. And then some are just misinformed. Like they're very interested in heaven and do lots of reading and video watching about heaven, but their sources are unreliable sources. They like watch movies about, about heaven. Well, that, that's not a reliable source. You're, you're, the, uh, that movie, whatever it is, is not a reliable source of information about what heaven's going to be like. Think like the, the movie, What Dreams May Come. And in that movie, a guy is, a guy is in heaven, supposedly, and he's lonely because his love isn't there. Randy Alcorn comments on that movie, and he says, if you watch the movie, you'll notice that there's somebody else missing in heaven. God is not there. How about Mitch Albom's book, The Five People You Meet in Heaven? Yeah, it's a feel-good story about a man who died lonely and feeling unimportant, and he meets five people in heaven who show him that his life mattered. Now, that's a compelling story. I'm not down on imaginary stories and stuff like that. I don't think I'm a prude, but... But the problem, though, if that's your source, if that's what feeds your mind about heaven, you're getting a skewed picture. That's really not what the Bible says that we could expect because a book like that suggests to us that heaven's all about you. Well, it's, it's not about you. You'll be happy to be in heaven, but you won't be the primary main character in the story of eternity. No, see, unbiblical sources, listen, unbiblical sources at best portray heaven as less than it is, at worst, they rob us from, of the hope and the anticipation and the joy and the encouragement that God intends for us to have by understanding what he tells us we can expect in heaven. And here's the deal. You don't have to be uninformed or misinformed because God has spoken and he tells us in his word, this is so important, he tells us in his word everything we need to know and everything he wants us to know about heaven to come. He tells us in the Bible everything. Everything God wants you to know and everything you'll need to know about heaven is written in scripture. So today, my, my sermon is on heaven, and we're going to open the Bible and read a passage of scripture written by someone who went to heaven. God gave him a unique, um, amazing experience of going to heaven and then telling us about that experience. 
Are you interested? It's the Apostle Paul, and he writes this account in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to look at the first few verses of that chapter. We're in our study here on the afterlife. What happens when I die? And uh, the first couple of messages we had in this series, we've been looking at, we've been talking about what happens to the believer when they die. Like somebody who loves and follows Jesus, what happens to them when they die? And we saw in our first message that... um, What happens to a believer when they die is they immediately go to be with the Lord. They immediately go to be with Jesus. And then, last week we saw that in the future, there's going to be a resurrection. And on that day, the believer, the follower of Jesus, is going to be given a new glorified body that's fit for eternity. Won't that be something? Now again today, we're thinking about the experience of a believer. We'll talk about unbelievers in in due course. But today we're still thinking about uh, believers, but particularly heaven. And the title of my message is Heaven, What It Is and What It Will Be. So we're looking at the subject of heaven. And like I said, Paul the Apostle, we're reading an account where he went to heaven and had this, this glorious experience. But I, I got to warn you right up front. Got to warn you right up front. While he tells us about the fact that he went there, he doesn't tell us what he saw. You're like, what? Why? I want to know what he saw. Well, he wasn't allowed to. He went, God, God didn't give him permission. But he does give us a little glimpse. He pulls the curtain back as far as the Spirit of God would allow him to show us something. I want you to see that. So let's go here, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Paul says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on divisions and revelations of the Lord. Just to pause here for a second, there was false teachers in Corinth who were claiming that they should be listened to because they had many ecstatic, wonderful, spiritual experiences. And Paul the Apostle is like, yeah, well, I've had experiences too. I don't go around boasting about them, but I've had them. Like, here's one. I got to go to heaven. <laughs> okay. And he's like, I don't, I don't really, I haven't talked about it because I don't want to be perceived like I'm boasting, but it's true. Look what he says in verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in body or out of body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise or heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Question, did he physically go to heaven? We don't know. He's like, I don't know. You can tell, though, that whatever God did here, it was a very vivid experience. Like, it's so vivid. Paul's like, I honestly, I don't know. Did he physically take me to heaven and then brought me back? Or was I just given a vision of heaven? I don't know, but I'm telling you, it happened. And it was very real. Verse 4, he says, And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So that's, see, that's why we're not getting a whole lot of detail. Can't be told. Well, who says? Well, God says. Verse 5, on behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except for my weakness. So you see what he's doing? He's talking in third person. Who's the man he's talking about? He's talking about himself and his own experience. You see, his reluctance here to even talk about this is so great. He even just begins by referring to himself in the third person. He doesn't want to be appear to be boasting. And he's been told that he's not to tell what he saw. So he says, I'm not going to boast, but I will boast in my weaknesses. Verse 6, though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, right? Like, is it, is it bragging if you're just speaking the truth? Like, is, is it bragging if you say we're on to the second round, finally at last? No, that's just truthful. Is it bragging for Paul to say, I, <laughs> I went to heaven and came back? It's just truthful. It could be perceived as that. But it's true. But, he says, middle of verse 6, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Sounds demonic, doesn't it? A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me, from becoming conceited. What's what's he saying here? In the wisdom and even the kindness of God, God has seen fit to ordain that the devil and his demons should be allowed to harass Paul 
it seems in some physical way that there is physical ailment here for a good edifying purpose, namely to keep him humble. Well, why would God need to do that to keep him humble? Because he got a glimpse of heaven and it was awesome. So awesome that he, it's, it's like in his fallenness, in his flesh, the opportunity for pride to come in and conceit is so real. So what God does in his kindness is he brings this harassment, he allows for this harassment to come on him, this physical ailment to keep him humble, to keep him from becoming conceited. Now my question for you is, what does Paul tell us that heaven is like? He says in verse 7, See that phrase, the surpassing greatness of the revelations? In other words, I went to heaven, and what I saw was surpassingly great. It was incredible. It was epic. It was amazing. So amazing that God is using supernatural means just to keep me in check while I'm in this fallen flesh that I'm in. But I tell you, folks, it was amazing. And that was his trip to heaven. The word heaven appears in our English Bibles about 500 times. We use the word heaven in different ways, don't we? I mean, we're talking about heaven today in reference to the afterlife. Sometimes we use heaven in different ways, though, don't we? You know, like sometimes we'll, we'll say we're in heaven when we're at a car show or maybe halfway through your day at the spa or when you walk into the buffet at the Mandarin. You might hear yourself saying... I think I'm in heaven. We use the word heaven to talk about wonderful people and great experiences. In the Bible, though, we see the word heaven used in at least three different ways. Sometimes the word heaven refers to the atmosphere, like, like the sky and, and the clouds. Sometimes the word heaven is used with reference to space, like, like the moon and the stars, the constellations, like talking about the universe out there. You know, like in the Bible, the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. He's talking about, like, when I look out and see that amazing, breathtaking night sky, it's just a declaration of the majesty and power and creativity of God. So sometimes the word heaven's referring to, like, the, the sky and the clouds. Sometimes it's to the universe. But, of course, there's lots of times when we read the word heaven in the Bible, and it's talking about heaven, heaven. It's talking about you know, everything to do with your future as a believer in the afterlife. So you say, okay, well, Ross, how do you, how do you know? Well, how you know is you just look at the context. And, and most times, if you just look at the context and what's being talked about, you, you can discern here, is this a reference to the clouds or to the stars or to heaven, heaven? Well, Paul here is talking about heaven, heaven. In fact, he calls it the third heaven, and meaning, meaning not the clouds, not the stars and the constellations of the universe, but heaven, and this place with reference to the afterlife. Now, I want to share with you six facts about heaven today. I got more, I think I told you last week, I got two sermons that I'm going to preach to you on heaven. So here's my plan. I'm going to preach this one today on what heaven is and what it will be. And then we've got kind of some rough road we got to get through because there's some more things about the afterlife we got to talk about. We got to talk about judgment. We're going to have to talk about hell. But I want to finish the series by coming back to heaven and what it will be like for all eternity. So, so that's, that's the roadmap, okay, that we're going on. But we're, so we're going to talk about heaven today, what it is now, something of what it will be. And then we're going to go through some rough road. And then we're going to, Lord willing, come back to heaven and what it's going to be forever, okay? So that's, that's where we're going. But we'll just do the first part today, all right? So, so here we go. Six facts that you need to know about heaven. Number one, heaven is a real place. Heaven is actually really a place. It's real. Um, Paul was not sure whether he went there physically or if he was just shown heaven in a vision, but he was certain that it was real, that heaven is real. Uh, heaven, wherever it might be, be found, does not appear to be part of this dimension that we live in, but rather exists for real in a spiritual dimension. Like, I suppose it's possible that maybe it's out there somewhere in a place that if we could find it, but it seems more likely 
that heaven is in another sphere. Like we can't, even if we had the means and the technology, we couldn't get in a rocket ship and slam into it somewhere out there. It's, we see in scripture, it's a place you can only go if God takes you there. But dear human being, dear physical Canadian living in the year 2023, don't let that skew your thinking to think that it's not real. It's very real. And that's a big part of what Paul shows us here Paul shows us here in our text. And it's not just here. All throughout Scripture, we see the presumption, even the assertion, that heaven is a real place. Take, for example, the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. He was talking about going to heaven after he died. This is the night before he died. This is what he said to his disciples. In my Father's house... What's his Father's house? What's that? It's heaven. That's right. In my Father's house are many rooms. Isn't that good news? There's many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Because, notice, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Now, I'm putting some real emphasis on some syllables here, aren't I? Right? Because I want you to see that Jesus is very clear here in the context of what he's saying here. He is very clear that this is a real place. This isn't an idea. It's not, it's not a state of mind. It's real. He's talking about there, place, where, there, those kinds of words, like a real place. How about also what, uh, Luke chapter 24? Luke, uh, in the book of Luke, and then in the book of Acts, Luke gives two accounts uh, a parallel accounts of the ascension of Jesus when Jesus went into heaven after the resurrection. Here's the first one he gives us, Luke chapter 24. He says, then he, talk about Jesus, then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was, notice, carried up into heaven. So he's there, the resurrected Jesus is physically there, And then Luke says, he parted from them. Well, where did he go? He went up into heaven. Again, it's a place. It's assumed to be a real, actual place. How about Acts chapter 1? Same author, different book. The angel, after Jesus ascended into heaven, an angel appears and speaks to them. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So where has Jesus gone? He's gone into heaven. Now, granted, it's possible when he says, why do you stand looking into heaven? The reference is up into the sky, into the universe. But there's no question as to where Jesus has gone. Into heaven, heaven, that we're talking about here. How about another one? Acts chapter 7. And uh, here we've got a really powerful story about a man who was being killed for his faith. His name was Stephen. And right before he died, he was given a glimpse of heaven. Notice what it says. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. And you say, well, hang on. Is it looking up at the sky? Looking up at the sun? No, no. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So he was given, in his dying moment, was given a vision of heaven. Wouldn't that be something if God in his kindness did that for you? When it's your time, maybe he will. That's what he did for Stephen. But again, I want you to see the implication here, the assumption in Scripture is it's a real place. One more verse to show you. How about uh, Luke 15 and verse 7? Jesus speaking again, and he says this, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what he means is who think they need no repentance. The point, Jesus spoke of heaven as a real inhabited place where there's rejoicing over souls saved. Repeatedly throughout the Bible, we see heaven referred to very matter-of-factly. It's a real place. It is not merely a state of mind or a blissful experience. The Bible shows us that heaven is indeed for real. And I want to say this, I don't need books and movies to confirm that for me. 
I've got the scripture. I've got the Bible tells me. Not only does it tell this to me, it's also a reliable source because the ultimate author of the Bible is the expert on heaven, namely God. Like he knows what he is talking about. It's, I shake my head sometimes at Christian publishers and then Christians snapping up these heaven visitation books. You know, books, experiences that people have had, near-death experiences where they've, they've gone, they supposedly have gone to heaven and they've come back to, to tell us about it. Now look, I, I get the, that the afterlife is a very interesting subject. as part of the reason I'm teaching this series. I get that. And I'm not down on people writing about their experiences or buying books, all that kind of stuff. My issue, though, is with Christians reaching out to these things, these books and these movies, as a means to try to confirm for themselves the truth about heaven. You don't need any more confirmation. You've got it here. And what's more, this is actually reliable. Like, you can count on this. Some of these heaven visitation books, they say stuff that's not true. And you're like, well, how do you know it's not true? Because they're reading the Bible and it says something different. For example, one book that came across my desk a few years ago was a book called 90 Minutes in Heaven, written by a guy named Don Piper. Not John Piper, Don Piper. And um, he wrote this book and he had an experience where he had a, a, it was described as a near-death experience. He died and, and came back to life and uh, was revived, not resurrected, revived. Massive difference. And um, uh, here's what he says. He, he says that he had this, a 90-minute experience in heaven. Now, here's what he says. And I, as I read this, listen, dear Christian, you tell me if it sounds true, okay? As I stood before the gate, I didn't think of it, but later I realized that I didn't hear such songs as the old rugged cross or the nail-scarred hand. None of the hymns that filled the air were about Jesus' sacrifice or death. I heard no sad songs and instinctively knew that there are no sad songs in heaven. Why should there be? All were praises about Christ's reign as King of kings and our joyful worship for all he's done for us and how wonderful he is. Now let me ask you, honestly, does that sound true? Now, I'll just say, I can totally see how you could read that and think to yourself, no, that sounds right. That sounds logical. Heaven is a happy place. There's no, there's no crying in heaven. No, <laughs> no crying in there's no, There's no tears there. So, so I can see rationally. Like, uh, yeah, okay. Oh, wow, won't that be wonderful? No sad songs in heaven. The problem is that the Bible says the opposite. Not that, there's no, not that there's sadness in heaven. No, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. But this little bit here about none of the hymns that filled the air were about Jesus' sacrifice or death. That's what Don, not John, Don Piper says is going on in heaven. I open the Bible and read what the Apostle John said, who was shown into heaven, and here's what he wrote. He says that what's going on in heaven is this, that around the throne there is this this worship being given. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, uh, seals Revelation 5, 9. For you, talk about Jesus, you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 5 and 12. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The song in heaven is worthy are you, Jesus, who was slain, who was crucified for us. So, Don, not John, Don Piper says, there's no songs like that in heaven. The Apostle John says, there is songs like that in heaven. Who do you believe? You see the problem. Believers, when we build our faith on what people assert they have experienced. We're standing on, on, we're standing on fool's ground because God has spoken. And what God has spoken, what God has said, is reliable. So you want to know about heaven? God wants you to know about heaven from him. You see? Okay. I feel better now. You want to know about heaven? That's awesome. That's what God wants for you. So read your Bible. 
Read your Bible. You say, well, you're saying they're lying? No, I, I, I believe they had some kind of experience. But whether they went to heaven or not, for me, the jury is not back in the room yet. But I'm thinking the vote is no. Heaven is a real place. The Bible tells us so. You got that? Got that? Please, please tell me you got that. The Bible tells us. It's real. Second, heaven is where God dwells. Heaven's where God dwells. Listen to Deuteronomy 26, verse 15. Israel was taught to pray this way. Look down from your holy habitation, addressing God. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray? Matthew 6, 9. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Matthew 10 and 32, Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Heaven is repeatedly shown to be the place where God dwells. Now, God is not contained in heaven. 2 Chronicles 2 and 6 says that even highest heaven cannot contain him. God is everywhere present. Theologians call it, say that he is omnipresent. It means he is everywhere present. But he is pleased and has been pleased throughout redemptive history to localize the manifestation of his glory. And so we can say in a very true sense and truly that heaven is where God dwells. He dwells in heaven. That's what Jesus means when he talks about his father who is in heaven. And when you think along those lines, you can begin to let that steer your imagination about what heaven is like and what it's not like. If it's the place where God's glory, where God and his glory dwells, then what kind of a holy, marvelous, glorious place must it be? Heaven is where God dwells. That's the second thing. Third, heaven is where Jesus is. Heaven's where Jesus is. We saw in these scriptures, we've read already that Jesus ascended into heaven. How about Hebrews 9 and 24? Look what it says about Jesus. For Christ entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Well, that's really, really good news, that he appears before God on our behalf. You know what that means? It means that you've got an advocate before God. You've got, a, you've got one interceding for you, intervening for you. There's a holy and just God, and we've sinned against him. In fact, we were confessing sin a few minutes ago, weren't we? But the wonder of wonders, part of the great message of the good news of the gospel is we've got a Savior who not only died to pay for our sins, but, but pleads for us before God on our behalf. And, and don't imagine Jesus standing there begging, oh, God, go easy on them. That, that, banish that for your minds. No, no. What's happening is that we've got the crucified Jesus who's raised from the dead, having paid the penalty for sin and now conquered sin and death, standing before the Father, and thereby his very presence before God the Father. He is the living declaration that anyone who is in him is forgiven. And so in that sense, he intercedes for you. That's why we can pray, we can confess our sins like we were a little earlier in hope because of the knowledge of the fact that Christ has died for my sins and he intercedes for me. But this is where Jesus is. He's gone into heaven itself, the author of Hebrews says. Uh, and so this is a wonderful place to be one day, won't it? It's where Jesus is. It's where God dwells. It's where Jesus is. Number four, fourth fact I want you to know about heaven. Heaven is where believers go when they die. Heaven is where believers go when they die. I spent a whole sermon a couple weeks ago on this. So I won't say much about this, but I want to remind you of this verse, Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Jesus said to the dying thief who believed, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me, where? In paradise. What's paradise? It's heaven. Today you'll be with me. A few weeks ago I lost a friend of mine I've known a long, long time. Loved Jesus followed Jesus, trusted Jesus, served Jesus. And very, very suddenly, far too young, he died. But in the moment he died, he went to be with Jesus. And if you're in Christ, that's what's going to happen to you too. The moment you die, you'll be with him. In fact, for my friend, his name is Dan, those words, today you'll be with me in paradise, that moment, that moment, he saw the reality of that saw the reality of that, experienced it. And so we miss him, 
But I think if he could talk to us today, he'd be like, I ain't coming back, okay, until Jesus comes. Because this is way better. How could it be way better? Because Jesus is there. It's where God dwells. It's where Jesus is. It's where believers go when they die. Number five, heaven is our true home. Heaven is our true home. I'm going to show a verse I showed you last week, but I want to put it up here again to emphasize another part of it. Philippians 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, your citizenship, I mean, it's, it's your home, right? It's, it's where you're from. My citizenship, I'm a Canadian. I was born here. I lived my whole life here. I'm a Canadian citizen. I got a Canadian passport. Lots of you are Canadian citizens. Some of you are American citizens. That's your citizenship. Maybe you got, you got dual citizenship, some of you. For, for others here in the room, your citizenship is maybe in an, another country, maybe in another continent. And when you think about your citizenship, you're like, ah, I may be living here, but my true citizenship is over there. Now, for me, it gets ridiculous because, you know, I, I, my, my heart just, I have this little homing pigeon in me that keeps going back to Peterborough because that's my citizenship. Peterborough, Ontario, my hometown. And it's, it's, it's pathetic, really. I read the news from Peterborough almost every day. It's sad. It's pathetic. I, I just can't help it. I can't get out of my system. They say the home is where the heart is. And I, I guess, yeah, it just keeps, and I got family there and, and friends there. And just so I cheer for the Pete's. I'm very proud of the lift locks. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you got to go to Peterborough and see them, try them out. It's amazing. And so that's, that, that's my home. What's your home? Well, here's the thing. Wherever our home is, whatever we think of as our home, the Bible tells us that our true home, home home, is not where we've come from, but where we're going. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, from heaven, why from heaven we wait a Savior? Because that's where our Savior is. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Heaven is our true home. It's where we belong. We have rights there. We have rights there. If you are a citizen of heaven, then you have guaranteed admission. Just like when you show up at your home country, no matter where you've been or whatever you got in your suitcase, I mean, you may go to jail, but it's in your bag, but they let you in because it's your home. You got rights there. You and I, we got rights in heaven. And also, too, while we're here on earth in this life, we've got responsibilities. Because we're here, we're not here as tourists, we're here as ambassadors for Jesus. We're ambassadors from our true home heaven, making known to the nations the king of all kings and that life can be found in him. But heaven is our true home. One of my concerns is that I think some believers are way too at home in this world. Way too at home. And Peter, the apostle, reminds us that we are not home. Let me show you this verse here from um, 1 Peter. He says, to those who are elect exiles. Now, in the context here, we could at first blush think, well, of course, he's calling them exiles because they're believers who, because of persecution, are scattered all over what is now modern-day Turkey. And so there's a sense in which we could read this and think, oh yeah, he calls them exiles because most of them are exiled from their home. But when you read on, you see he's got something else in mind. To those who are elect exiles, blessed be, sorry, that's a typo, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Notice, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And all of a sudden it lands on us, oh yeah, they're exiles in one sense because they're exiled from their home because of persecution. But now we see, now Peter's not thinking firstly of that kind of exile. He's thinking of the bigger exile, that in these days in this world, we are, as it were, exiled from our home until the day when we are brought home to heaven because heaven is our home. My concern is that sometimes we forget that we are exiles. And this can manifest itself in lots of ways. I mean, one way it can manifest itself is that we take it way too easy. And we can sort of just go on vacation mode and forget that we're called to be on mission, too, too comfortable, too, too into the world, and not with our eyes on the finish line. 
It can also manifest itself in being way too torn up and way too consumed with things. Is your true home? I'm concerned that sometimes believers, as believers, we feel you've had a tough week, if you've experienced some, the Bible says we can expect we'll face trials of various kinds. So loved ones, remember, heaven is our true home. No matter where you think, when it is our true home. Now I want to tell you one part of only it'll be radically Revelation, the big number 21. And I want to show you is that heaven in the future will include the new earth. Okay, so look at Revelation. You can't tell. John, John, he got to go to heaven and see it and he was not only allowed to tell, he was told to tell what he saw. We, as Canadians in the genre of genre called apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. Nobody really writes like this anymore other than we have it from antiquity. But it's a kind of writing that's heavy about what God said. Tricky and difficult. Bible students will understand things in Revelation differently. But that doesn't mean that we can't understand. And I want you to see here what John said about the future, about and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city turns to heaven. Adorned for her husband. What does she look a bride adorned for her husband. She's beautiful. She's breathtaking. I saw my bride come into the So I get these visions in my mind. Well, I mean, I think she looks awesome. What's heaven going to look like? Part of heaven. People and God and death will dwell people and God and death shall be no more. Neither shall, neither shall mourning, nor crying, nor pain I'm making all things new. Heaven new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness Dwells. We'll come back to this later in the series, but Paul says in Romans 8, he says, creation waits with eager longing for this to happen. So think about all the animal kingdom, all that the earth consists of and contains, Paul says, is longing for this to happen, to be made new. This tells me something. Something good is going to happen out of this which is broken. And it seems to me that when the Lord says he's going to make all things new, he has a plan that one day, however he's going to do it, heaven as we know it now, heaven as it is, will come to expand and include the earth. And you say, well, that's pretty heady, Ross. We want to understand that better. Heaven as it is, heaven as it will be. Will you be there? Because eternal state, our forever home, says this. But nothing, verse 27, Revelation 21, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I'm glad that last part is there because I read about unclean, detestable, false. I'm like, uh, guilty. I've done some detestable and false things. But the good news of the gospel is that even though you probably have too, 
in Jesus, we find, we find the forgiveness of those unclean, detestable, false things. And we're washed, our sins are washed away. And here's the thing. Anyone who trusts in Jesus for salvation, their name is in this book that we're reading about here, this Lamb's Book of Life. Who's going to be in this place called heaven? It says, only those, you see that on the page? You see that? Only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What's the Lamb's Book of Life? Well, it's a book of life. It's a book, it's a register that God has, whatever it looks like, whatever it is, we, we see and understand it as a register of God that God has of the names of every person whose home is heaven. Every person who's trusting and who's saved by trusting in him. If you love and follow Jesus, your name's in that book. Isn't that good news? If you're trusting in Jesus today, your name is in the book of life. It's called the Lamb's book of life because you get in that book because of the work of the Lamb. Because he died on the cross to remove our sins from us so that we can indeed go to heaven. If you're trusting in Jesus, then your name is in that book. I wonder, do you know that your name is there? Did you know that you can be sure that it is there? If you'll turn and trust in Jesus? if you will accept his invitation that's on the table today to come to him. I want to leave you with this little story that I was reading by a woman named Ruthanna Metzger. She tells this little experience here that I think helps us pull this experience here that I think helps us pull this together. She writes this. She says, as a professional singer, it was not unusual to be asked to sing for a wedding but it was a bit unusual to sing for the wedding of a millionaire. I knew the wedding would be picture perfect. I was pleased to be able to participate. But when the invitation to the reception arrived, I knew it would be something exceptional. Two floors of Seattle's Columbia Tower, the Northwest's tallest skyscraper. And it was even more wonderful than I imagined. There were waiters wearing snappy black tuxedos who offered luscious hors d'oeuvres and exotic beverages for the most discriminating tastes. The atmosphere was one of grace and sophistication. After about an hour of merriment, the bride and groom approached a beautiful glass and brass staircase that led to the top floor. A satin, robe, uh, satin ribbon, which was draped across the bottom of the stairs, was cut, and the announcement made that the wedding feast was about to begin. The bride and groom ascended the stairs, and the guests followed. What a lavish event to be part of. A gentleman with a lovely bound book greeted us at the top of the stairs. May I have your name, please? I am Ruthanna Metzger, and this is my husband, Roy Metzger, I replied. The gentleman searched. He searched the book. I'm not finding it. Would you spell it, please? I spelled it slowly and clearly. And after searching through the book... The gentleman looked up and said, I'm sorry, but your name is not here. Without your name in this book, you cannot attend this banquet. Oh, there, there must be some mistake, I replied. I'm the singer. I sang for this wedding. The gentleman calmly answered, it doesn't matter who you are or what you did. Without your name in the book, you cannot attend this banquet. As I looked around the room, I thought briefly of running to the groom and trying to plead my case. But with a hundred guests on the stairs behind us and every place at tables assigned according to the thoughtful choices of the bride and groom, I stood silent. The gentleman of the book motioned a waiter and said, show these people to the service elevator, please. I just imagine he's got a British accent, right? <laughs> show, these, show these people to the service elevator, please. We followed the waiter past beautifully decorated tables laden with shrimp, whole smoked salmon, even gracefully carved ice sculptures. And adjacent to the banquet area was an orchestra. Its members all dressed in dazzling white tuxedos, preparing to fill the room with glorious music. We were led to the service elevator, stepped in, and the waiter himself pushed G for garage. My husband thoughtfully did not say a word, wise man, nor did I. As Roy drove out of the Columbia Tower garage, we both remained silent. After driving several miles in silence, Joy reached over and gently, Roy, sorry, reached over and gently put his hand on my arm and said, sweetheart, what happened? And then I remembered. When the invitation arrived for the reception, I was very busy and I never bothered to return the RSVP. Besides, I was the singer. Surely I could go to the reception without returning the RSVP. As we drove on, I began to weep. 
I was not weeping because I just missed the most lavish banquet of my life. I was weeping, though, because suddenly I knew what it will be like someday for people as they stand before the the entrance of heaven. People who were too busy to respond to Christ's invitation to his heavenly banquet. People who assumed the good things they had done, even perfect church attendance or singing in the choir, would be enough to gain entry into heaven. People who will look for their name in the Lamb's book of life and not find it there. People who did not have time to respond to Christ's gracious invitation to have their sins forgiven and accept him into their hearts. And then I wept again because I was so grateful that I had. Many years earlier, I received Christ as my personal Savior and can be confident that my name is written in the most important book of all. The Lamb's Book of Life is yours. And that's the question. Is your name in there? Will you be there? You can make sure of it today by responding to Christ's invitation. And that's actually what I want to do right now as I close my sermon, is I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the invitation of Jesus who says, come to me. If you will believe on him, you can have your sins forgiven and the guarantee of a home in heaven. Your name will not be missing from that book, but you will see one day that it is in that book. And you need not fear what is to come in the future, but you can look with confidence and certainty, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And his call on you today is to respond in faith, believing, saying, yes, Lord Jesus. So I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. I'm going to pray here. And as I pray, there's nothing magical about what I'm going to say. But as I pray, I'm just going to express simple words of faith in Jesus. And if in your heart you agree, if today you want to make sure that you know Jesus as your Savior, then I'd invite you just to pray along with me as we close our time together. Let's pray.